on January the 6th, 1994, Nancy Kerrigan, an Olympic figure skater, was attacked after practice at the Cabo Arena in Detroit, Michigan, in what would become one of the biggest sports scandals in history. The hitman was Shane Stant, who used a 21-inch collapsible baton to strike Kerrigan's right leg. He, along with his uncle Derek Smith, were contracted by Jeff Galuli, the ex-husband of skating rival Tanya Harding, and Harding's bodyguard, Sean Eckhart. So how was Tanya Harding involved? Some of you may have recalled that story. Kerrigan was Nancy or Tanya Harding's longtime rival, the one person in the way of her making the Olympic team. Harding's desperation to win at all costs prompted Galuli to set up the attack. Though she didn't admit it at the time, Harding later confessed in 2018 that she, quote, knew something was up. Thus, fierce competition and the lust for fame and fortune were the motivation behind taking Kerrigan down, bringing together a stranger-than-fiction motley crew of amateur hooligans. The crime had all the schemes fit for a tabloid soap opera. On February the 1st, in exchange for a lighter sentence, Galuli testifies against his ex-wife and pleads guilty to the crime of racketeering. Days later, Galuli and Harding's trash was recovered, revealing notes of Kerrigan's practice schedule in Massachusetts. A handwriting expert confirms that the notes were written by Tanya Harding. With evidence mounted against her, Harding officially pleads guilty to the charge of conspiracy to hinder prosecution. She receives three years probation and is slapped with a $160,000 fine. A few months later, her 1994 national championships title is revoked and she is banned from the United States Figure Skating Association forever. I share this story with you this morning because it is an example of a person, Tanya Harding, who conspires or plots against her rival, Nancy Kerrigan, because of the latter's achievements and successes. Tanya saw in Nancy a person who could potentially keep her from reaching her personal goals and ambitions. Tanya, being jealous, was not going to have it. So she becomes involved in a conspiracy to take her rival out. In today's story in Daniel chapter 6, we're going to see another conspiracy. However, it is not going to be about figure skating or figure skaters. The story of Daniel 6 is about a group of powerful government officials who are serving in the new Persian administration. They too, no doubt, have personal goals and ambition within this administration. The problem for them, however, is that there is another individual, Daniel, who is having more success than they are within this new administration. Daniel's success is a threat and a hindrance to their own advancement within the Persian government. 
For this reason, the government officials within the Persian Empire will conspire against God's servant, Daniel. Well, what do I mean by conspire? A conspiracy. A conspiracy or to conspire is the activity of secretly planning with other people to do something bad or illegal. What is important for us to know in this story in Daniel chapter 6 is that whatever happened when government officials conspired against God's servant Daniel then is likely to happen when government officials conspire against God's servants today. And this will be important for the church to know and understand in the times in which we live in today. That leads us to our question this morning. What happens when government officials conspire against God's servants in a pagan land? What happens when government officials conspire against God's servants in a pagan land? Number one, when government officials conspire against God's servants in a pagan land, it will be because God's servants have been faithful to the work that God has called them to. This will be the impetus for it. Verses 1 to 4. Now, it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom. And over these three governors, of whom Daniel was one, that the satraps might give account to them so that the king would suffer no loss. Now what has happened? We saw last week that the Persian Empire under Darius had conquered Babylon. Darius now wants to make sure that the new territory that he is now ruling over is going to pay their taxes. So he sends and has sets up a bureaucracy to, to collect taxes within this territory that he's now ruling over. And he sends, uh, he sends out uh, 120 satraps. Over these satraps, he has three individuals who are going to oversee the satraps to make sure they collect their taxes. They don't pocket any money. One of the three individuals is Daniel. So that's what's going on. Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and the satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. Hmm. I wonder how those government officials who had been serving Darius and the Persian government are going to respond to that. They're not going to like that. This person who was serving in the Babylonian administration is now serving in the Persian administration, and he is over the whole realm, or at least Darius is thinking about placing him over the whole realm. You can be sure that there were Persian government officials who were not happy with that at all. They become jealous. And they want to do something about it, because they don't want Daniel to prosper. So, the governors and the satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom. But they could find no charge or fault. Why? Because Daniel was faithful. He was faithful in his work, nor was there any any error or fault 
found in him. They want to get Daniel out of the way. So what better way to do that than let's find something wrong with Daniel? But when they try to find something wrong with Daniel, they fail. The man is above reproach, and everything he does, he does well. He was faithful. That tells us that the reason why, or more likely, I want to say, when government officials conspire against God's servants in a pagan land, it will be because God's servants have been faithful to the work that God has called them to. The pagan government officials, or the, the uh, Persian government officials, try to find something on Daniel. They can't. So now they're going to have to conspire. That's what happens. Daniel was a faithful individual. When God's servants are faithful to God and what God has called them to do, and you're successful, others may not like your success. So they're going to try to find something about you that will be a reason for you not to be successful anymore. And when they can't find that, they'll conspire secretly with no one knowing. When government officials conspire against God's servants in a pagan land, it will be because God's servants have been faithful to the work that God has called them to. That's number one. And that's going to be the whole motive of what happens the rest of the chapter. Sets it all up. Number two. When government officials conspire against God's servants in a pagan land, they will often manipulate those with greater political power to employ laws that forbid the customary religious practices of God's servants. That's how they'll do it. Verses 5 to 9. Then these men said, We shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. That is, concerning his faith, concerning his religious beliefs and practices. They can't find it anywhere else, but they know Daniel is faithful to his God. So maybe we can use that to our advantage. So what do they do? So these governors and satraps thronged. They acted in concert, in harmony to conspire before the king, someone who had more political power than they did. And said thus to him, King Darius, live forever. All the governors of the kingdom, the administrators and satraps, the counselors and advisors, have consulted together, that is, they conspired together, to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree, a law, that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den or the pit of lions. That's the conspiracy. They want to make a law. What, are they, what is this here? Whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days. They want to make a law so that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days will be thrown into the pit. Now, what is a petition? Prayer. What is a customary religious practice for God's people in that day? Prayer. What is the customary religious practice for God's people today? Prayer. They don't want people to pray. Only through Darius. The text says, to any god or man... 
I'll explain that in just a moment. So they say, now, O king, establish the decree or law and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed or revoked according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. Therefore, what does the king do? He signed the written decree into law. They don't have the power to employ this law without being changed. they got to get the king's approval to do it. So they manipulate him and come under the disguise or under the impression that we want to pass this law so that people will give you the due respect that you deserve as the new ruler of the Babylonian kingdom. That's why we're doing this, O king. That's not why they're doing it. Nothing is as it seems with these guys. So they want to establish a law, get him to sign the writing so that once the law is employed, you can't reverse it. And so he goes ahead and signs it. He employs a law that's going to restrict a religious practice of Daniel. And that's what happens. When government officials conspire against God's servants in a pagan land, they will often manipulate those with greater political power to employ laws that forbid the customary religious practices of God's servants. Outlaw prayer. Except for to one person. Now it says, you can't make any request to God or man. What does that mean? It is interesting that the text says that nobody was to make a request to any God or man. But what does that mean? Petitioning or praying to any God is clear enough. But what is the meaning of petitioning or praying to any man? Stephen Miller observes that since the requests are religious, it seems, to be, it seems to allude to the priests through whom the petitions were mediated to the gods. Thus, Darius was to be the only priestly mediator during this period. In his role as mediator, prayers to the gods were to be offered through him rather than the priests. And such a law might have been allowed for political reasons, and Darius may also have permitted a decree of this kind as a test of loyalty in the new government. So that's what he's doing. Now a law has been passed where only prayers or requests could be made to Darius. That's a problem for Daniel, is it not? Are you saying, Pastor John, is it possible that one day a law is going to be passed that's going to forbid Christians from exercising a customary religious practice like prayer? Is that possible? I don't know. But listen to this. Maybe you heard of this. This happened just about a month ago, two months ago. A UK woman is arrested for praying. A British woman arrested near a Birmingham, England abortion center for praying under a new protest prohibition statute, told a media outlet that she fears her situation will not be the last in the UK. Isabel Vaughn Spruce said she has long engaged in silent prayer outside critics, outside clinics, saying dozens of women have accepted her offers of help and go on to continue their pregnancies rather than terminate them as planned. She explained how the anti-protest policy 
has since been used to include similar behavior at abortion centers. In September of this year, 2022, the local council in Birmingham brought in this censorship zone. Formerly, these were used for dog fouling and drunken behavior and things like that. But they're now popping up around the country surrounding abortion centers, and they ban behavior like protesting. But it also names prayer and counseling as forms of protesting. Four times I went and stood near the closed abortion center and silently prayed there. As you can see, the police came and asked me if I was protesting, which I wasn't. They asked me if I was praying, and I said, I might be silently praying. I was arrested. Vaughn Spruce added, authorities detained her in a cell, interrogated her regarding what she was praying about, and was later released on bail with an appearance scheduled for February this month on four counts of protesting and engaging in an act intimidating of service users. I am not saying that what's happening in Daniel 6 is analogous to what's happening in UK. This woman could pray in other places. She just couldn't pray in certain spaces near an abortion clinic, for example. Daniel couldn't pray anywhere. It was forbidden unless he was going to pray or give homage to Darius. So the situations are not analogous. I will say, however, that's not a good trend. It seems like there's an encroachment on spaces where people can actually pray. So maybe this isn't something that's not possible in our day. Praying is a customary practice that was forbidden in Daniel's time. Would it be possible that it could happen like that in our own? After hearing something like that, it's not so far-fetched. What would be other customary practices that could be prohibited by law that you could see happen? The assembling of ourselves? Is that a customary practice of God's people? Is it possible that some law could forbid the church from assembling themselves for whatever reason? You can be sure there'll be a reason for it. We saw during the pandemic that there were strong voices of church communities from assembling during the pandemic. Okay, I understand why. If you want to keep people safe, understand. I get it. The problem becomes is when you see those same voices who are arguing that Christians are assembling together are silent when other people assemble for different reasons and they remain silent. Why the inconsistency? You have to ask why when it's not being equally applied to all people in all places. Is there something nefarious going on underneath the surface? It was here. What about, what about proclaiming biblical truth through speech? How about preaching the Bible the way God wants his word spoken? Will there be a law forbidding kinds of speech that God wants his servants to proclaim? In the early church, they couldn't speak about Jesus. Don't speak in his name anymore. That was a customary practice that God wanted his people 
to do. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. Go and teach the people all the things that I've observed. You've got to do that through speech. There are practices that the conspirators could manipulate people with greater power than they, manipulate the person, employ laws that could forbid Christian practices that are customary, just like in Daniel's day. That's a very real possibility. And so the point is, again, what government officials conspire against God's servants in a pagan land, they will often manipulate those with greater political power to employ laws that forbid the customary religious practices of God's servants. That is not out of being a, that's not far from being a reality. You say, that sounds a lot like what happened in Daniel chapter 3. There is a difference. What happened to Daniel chapter 3? What happened here in Daniel chapter 6 is not the same as what took place in Daniel chapter 3. In chapter 3, the king wanted the three young men to do something that was forbidden by God to do. That was to bow down and worship a statue. Here in chapter 6, the conspirators wanted Daniel to stop doing something that God commanded them to do, which was to pray. To say it another way, the sin of chapter 3 is the sin of commission. The sin of chapter 6 is the sin of omission. That's the difference. It is possible that political leaders in our day will be manipulated by those within their administration to bring about legislation that will hamper God's religious, God's people's customary practices whether it be prayer, assembling of yourselves, speaking his truth, there could be others that you're thinking of. Number three, when government officials conspire against God's servants in a pagan land, God's servants must continue their customary religious practices in violation of any law that forbids them. Verse 10. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, that is, when he knew it was illegal to pray, a customary religious practice of his, he went home, and in his upper room, with his windows open towards Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since the early days. You know what Daniel is doing? He's saying, I would rather be eaten by lions than to stop communicating with my God. And there's no law that's going to keep me from doing it. And he was serious about it. Stephen Miller, or I should say Tremper Longman, mentions, he says, the mention of three times a day indicates that Daniel's prayer on this occasion is not stirred on by the decree. It is part of his regular habit. He is not flaunting his rebellion in the face of the king's orders. It's business as usual. Indeed, the description of his prayer is a statement that he is neither flaunting nor hiding his religious practice. After all, he is praying in an upper room, and the windows were open. He is not on public display, but neither is he hiding from determined spies. He just does what he does. The law says you can't assemble. 
we assemble. We come and we worship. We don't make a big, we don't grandstand, we just do what we do. We come here to hear God's word, to hear what he's saying to us, and hopefully he gives us the courage and the power to be compliant. That's all. We're about the kingdom business. And that's what Daniel's doing. When, when government officials conspire against God's servants in a pagan land, God's servants must continue their customary religious practices in violation of any law that forbids them. Number four. When government officials conspire against God's servants in a pagan land, those who wield great political power will often attempt to deliver God's servants from the penalty of breaking such laws when they realize they have been deceived. Verses 11 to 14. Then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. And they went before the king and spoke concerning the king's decree. Have you not signed a decree that every man who petitions any god or man within 30 days, except you, okay, shall be cast into the den of lions? Didn't you do that? Didn't you sign a decree? The king answered and said, yeah, the thing is true. According to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. Yeah, I signed it. Why? What's the problem? So they answered and said before the king, that Daniel, who is one of the captives from Judah, does not show due regard for you, O king, or for the decree that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Here they're falsely accusing him that he's doing something wrong. Well, watch the king's response when he finds out that Daniel was really the purpose behind this whole plot. And the king, when he heard these words, was greatly displeased with himself. Why? For allowing himself to be manipulated and deceived by those in his administration. And he set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And he labored, strove till the going down of the sun to deliver him. This is saying to us that when government officials conspire against God's servants in a pagan land, those who wield great political power will often attempt to deliver God's servants from the penalty of breaking such laws when they realize they have been deceived. What he's doing here, he's trying to find now a legal loophole. Somehow that he could, is there some way that I could reverse this decree so that Daniel doesn't suffer? Daniel has no Ill, uh, Darius has no ill will towards Daniel. He's just been manipulated. Now he sees what's happened. Now he's going to try to fix it, and he can't. So there are going to be some political leaders going forward who are going to be manipulated and they're going to get themselves in a bind and there's going to be nothing they can do. Number five, when government officials conspire against God's servants in a pagan land, the powerful politicians who have been deceived will often hope that God will deliver his servants when they are unable to deliver these servants themselves. Verses 15 and 16. Then these men approached or thronged before the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that, this, that it is the law of the Medes and Persians that no decree or statute which the king establishes may be changed. In other words, there's nothing you can do, King Darius, to deliver Daniel. You signed your name on the dotted line. So the king gave the command and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. But the king spoke, saying to Daniel, Your God whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. He was hoping that Daniel would be delivered. But he doesn't have the ability to do it himself. 
This is not necessarily a sign of faith in, in Daniel's God. He's just hoping and praying that somehow this Daniel, who's now going to be in the lion's den, is going to be delivered because he was deceived. Number six, when government officials conspire against God's servants in a pagan land, there will be no human way for God's servants to be delivered from their predicament. Verse 17, then a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signets of his lords that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. What's happening here? Stephen Miller says, soft clay was attached to the chain draped over the stone, and the king and his nobles made their personal marks or seals by pressing their rings into the clay. After the clay hardened, the chains could not be removed without breaking the seals. No one would attempt to remove the chain containing the names of the king and some of his highest officials. Daniel was now in the den, and all human possibility of escape was gone. Daniel has no hope of escaping by human means. And when government officials conspire against God's servants in a pagan land, there will be no human way for for individuals, God's servants, to get out of that situation. Daniel had no way out. He was powerless. He's now in the den of lions. Capital punishment. He has no way out. And God is saying there's going to be no way out for people, for God's servants, when this happens. Human way out. Number seven. When government officials conspire against God's servants in a pagan land, the powerful politicians who have been deceived will often be in distress because of their concern for God's servants. Verse 18. Now the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. Doesn't eat. And no musicians were brought before him. Can't entertain himself, no relaxation. And his sleep went or fled from him. Can't sleep. The man is in distress. There are going to be occasions and times when those who have great political power are going to be in great distress because of the situation that God's servants are going to be in as a result of being manipulated by those in their administration. God wants his church to know that. Not everybody who is a politician has an agenda against God's program, God's servants. And there are going to be people in power who are going to be really struggling with what's going on. And God wants his church to know that. Number eight, when government officials conspire against God's servants in a pagan land, God will often supernaturally protect his servants from harm when he finds them innocent of wrongdoing. Verses 19 to 22. Then the king arose very early in the morning and went in haste to the den of lions. And when he came to the den, he cried out with a a lamenting or grieved or anguished voice to Daniel. Thus the king spoke, saying to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, 
Has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? He has no idea if he's going to hear anything back. Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God has sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths so that they have not hurt me. That is, God has supernaturally protected me. Why? Because I was found innocent before him. And also, O king, I have done no wrong before you. What has happened here is that the court of heaven overruled the earthly court. That's what happened. They accused Daniel of doing something wrong, of praying to him, because the law of the land said, you can't. So he gets, put in, he gets thrown into the lion's den, and God says, nope, not having it. The man is innocent in my eyes, and I'm going to manifest that by not allowing these lions to eat him. The court of heaven overruled. The court of heaven overruled the resurrection with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The world said he was guilty. We'll put him on a cross. The king of the Jews. God says, nope. Overruled. Back to life. When government officials conspire against God's servants in a pagan land, God will often supernaturally protect his servants from harm when he finds them innocent of wrongdoing. And that's what Daniel in the lion's den is all about. God delivered an innocent man. That's what he's doing. Number nine. When government officials conspire against God's servants in a pagan land, God's servants will often be delivered from their ordeal because they have put their trust in the Lord. And that's what Daniel did, verse 23. Now the king was exceedingly glad for him and commanded that they should take or deliver Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den. He was delivered. And no injury, whatever, was found on him. Why? Because he believed in his God. He trusted in him. And when God's people, God's servants trust their God, when government officials conspire against them, God will deliver oftentimes because they put their trust in him. Oh, if we would just put our trust in him today if something like that were ever to happen. Number 10. When government officials conspire against God's servants in a pagan land, the conspirators will often meet the fate they had planned for God's servants. Verse 24. And the king gave the command, and they brought those men who had accused Daniel falsely, and they cast them into the den of lions. Them, their children, their wives, and the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces before they ever came to the bottom of the den. Some people say, well, the reason why Daniel wasn't eaten was because the lions were full. Maybe they had a game supper the night before. Evidently, that didn't happen with these men. These lions were so ferocious, these men couldn't even hit the ground before the lions were all over them. You say, well, why are the women and children involved in this? Why, why wasn't it just the men who were involved in this conspiracy? Stephen Miller says, although cruel, ex executing wives and children were the with the guilty man was the practice according to the Persia, 
of Persians. It was Persian custom. It was a policy that must have been carried out in part to prohibit retaliation from family members. That's why they were one of the reasons why they were included in it. Listen to what it says in Proverbs 28:10. Whoever causes the upright to go astray in an evil way, he himself will fall into his own pit, his own den. But the blameless will inherit good. That is exactly what has happened here. The blameless was vindicated. The guilty parties were judged. Number 11, when government officials conspire against God's servants in a pagan land, God's servants will ultimately prosper. Verses 25 to 28. Then King Darius wrote, To all peoples, nations, languages that dwell on the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a public decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. That is, they must respect the God of Daniel. Why? Well, for he is the living God and steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed and his dominion shall endure to the end. He delivers and rescues and he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth who has delivered Daniel from the power or the hand of the lions. So this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. God's final note on this entire chapter is that when government officials conspire against God's servants in a pagan land, God's servants ultimately will prosper. Nothing can thwart his plan. The church, its leaders are going to need to hear this because there will be people who will be conspiring, and they are now, to undermine God's servants, his people, and the mission of the church. And that's why you're hearing it now. It will become more necessary to hear this in the future, particularly God's servants who are faithful to what God is doing, just like Daniel was. As we look back to the cross, we see that Jesus himself faced the same threat as Daniel in the lion's den. As early, Christians art, or early Christian art attests, Daniel's emergence from the lion's den is typological of Jesus' death and resurrection. As Daniel was framed on a false charge by the Persian administrators, so Jesus was framed by the jealous religious leaders of his day. They reported to the Roman authorities that he was claiming political authority with the state king of the Jews, with the title king of the Jews. Jesus, like Daniel, was arrested while at prayer in a private location, the Garden of Gethsemane. Pilate, like Darius, worked for his release, but in the end, both Daniel and Jesus are turned over to be executed. However, the big difference between the two is that Daniel emerges without a scratch. Jesus dies. Yet that difference is what underlies the superiority of the reality to its foreshadow. Jesus dies, yet he emerges from the tomb. Because of this act, because of the resurrection of Jesus, we can see the power that allows us to risk all for our faith knowing that we too one day will rise from the dead. Are, do we want to be like a Daniel today? 
Daniel was willing to be eaten by lions to maintain his relationship with God and express that as he normally did. Would we be willing to do the same in our day if we get tested in that same way? I ask myself that question. When I study and I prepare for this, I ask myself, you know, it's one thing to preach about it in Milbank, South Dakota. It's another thing to preach like this when you see the lions out there, knowing that that's where you're going to go if you preach on it. A prison cell sounds distant until you're handcuffed and you're put in prison because you're obeying God and his will for your life. Would you be willing to do that? You may never be called to do that. I may not be so lucky, to be honest with you. Lord's will be done. Let us pray that God will give us this courage and the strength of a Daniel when we need it, if we need it, in the times in which we live. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. It's another hard word, but it's a word that the church needs to hear. We live in a broken society, broken governments, that will conspire against your people is nothing new. It happened to Daniel. It happened to Jesus. So Jesus' body should not be surprised if it happens once again, even even in our own land. I pray, Lord, that if that ever happens and laws are passed or employed that forbid our customary religious practices, give us the courage to be obedient to risk all to follow you. Because in the process of doing that, people will come to know who you are in a way that they would never otherwise learn. And they will know that you are the God of heaven. You rule in heaven and on earth. Lord, give us your strength and the power of your spirit to be obedient to you no matter what happens. Give us the courage to risk all and glorify you in the process. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.